Thank you for downloading the Aging Matters podcast. To find out more about how Transitions Life Care is providing care and comfort for life's changing needs, visit transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Good afternoon to you. I'm Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett, as always, representing Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights. Nicole, how are you? Well, the struggle is real, Jason. I'm going to be I'm going to be completely transparent. We are in week two of school at my house. They go to a charter school, and I think every single adult and child has had a meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was joking with you earlier that I can tell your stress levels uh, from the schooling situations, whether or not you remember to bring your headphones into the studio. If you don't have the headphones, I know that uh, it's it's been a tough week for Nicole. Well, yes, and I must say, though, I was super excited. I got sidetracked. There is a lovely lady I have not seen since the pandemic who happened to be stopping in here today to grab some belongings, and so I saw her, too. So between me working with the school right before I walked in here and seeing uh, Marge, you know, I just, I totally got sidetracked, so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Marge is one of our favorite characters, so uh, I'm, we we were ex- both excited to see yeah. her today. Well, Nicole, let's uh, let's get to our topic at hand, and uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of home infusion. And to do that, we're going to be speaking with Jessica Crable Hartman. She's a clinical pharmacist with PharmD. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So this is a topic that I don't think, gosh, in all of the years I've been recording radio since it's been since 2010 now, um, I don't think we have ever done the topic of home infusion. So I am really excited to talk about that because I think this is something uh, that exists out there that perhaps more people could actually benefit from in the home and don't even realize that that's a possibility. So Jessica, if you could talk to us a little bit just to help educate the community, what exactly is home infusion? And I actually think you're 100% correct in your assessment of people not knowing that this this line of therapy exists for them. So home infusion is the ability to receive IV medication and um, treatment at home. Um, so what we do here is we provide patients with a multitude of different types of therapy. So we have patients that receive IV antibiotics for severe infections. We have patients that receive IV cardiac medications if they have certain heart conditions. We have patients that get fed through their vein. We have patients that receive certain types of IV chemotherapy at home. We have service lines for pediatric patients that require care. Um, We have patients that receive enteral products through a um, G-tube or a J-tube, which is being fed through your stomach rather than through your mouth if there are certain conditions that prevent you from being able to swallow. Um, We also provide hospice services, which can be pain management at the end of life. And we can do pretty much anything that comes in an IV formulation, and we can do it in the home. So there are a lot of people currently who may have conditions that require them to go to a clinic once a month to receive a certain type of infusion. Lots of the autoimmune conditions, such as multiple sclerosis, um, conditions that require 
things like medications that will prevent worsening of disease states such as rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. We have medications that we can use in the home and treat the patients at home so that they can stay where they're comfortable and where they feel best rather than having to go into a hospital or a clinic. And in times like this, when COVID is our main concern um, and how we try to keep people safe and have less, less exposure, um, that is that is what we strive to do every day. And we've been here for a really, really long time. And I think just now with the pandemic, are people starting to utilize the services more because they're trying to find ways to bring the care to the house instead of bringing them into the hospital. So to add a little bit of color to what you do, I know that there was a recent uh, scenario that you all were involved in that got to be very creative, especially when we were in the phase one of the pandemic. And and I know this is even still the case for a lot of long-term care communities for people who might need infusion type services, but families do not want them to go to the hospital. You were able to do something pretty uh, creative and family care home, weren't you? We were. We were. Um, We had a patient that was of advanced age, had been in the care home, and they knew that if they took her into the hospital to get the treatment that the patient needed, that they weren't going to be allowed to come back. And that wasn't ideally what the family had desired for the patient. And at that point, we had to figure out what can we do to keep this patient from having to be admitted and how can we do it without physically having to enter the building, (laughs) which, you know, if you think about setting up IVs and providing an IV therapy to somebody, you automatically think, okay, well, you have to physically be next to that patient to make that happen. So... The patient needed some antibiotics and some fluids to kind of turn the case around, and we were able to set up um, a visit essentially where they pulled the patient over to the window. Um, The nurses were able to start IV access on her through the window of the building and teach the, the caregivers at the care home and the family how to administer the antibiotics and come back and do a couple other assessment visits throughout her course of therapy and, you know, restart IV therapy um, as her IV access had kind of had some issues. And they did it all through the window. So it was like drive-through home infusion nursing. That's amazing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's something that we never did before. And, you know, sometimes you just have to get creative. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of that since the pandemic. I feel like we've always done that. We've always had really different problem-solving skills over here um, to try to meet people's needs. But it definitely has kind of bumped it up a notch with with COVID. So Sure, sure. And I know that, you know, like, for example, with home health, a person needs to be homebound to receive home health services. Are there similar sort of constraints for a person to be able to utilize infusion from home or or are the rules a little different? There are different rules. Um, So depending on the payer source. So a lot of patients that have Um, Medicare are required to be homebound if their nursing is being billed through Medicare. Um, So there are differences if you do have a Medicare plan and, you know, you're on a medication, they do ideally want you to be homebound. Um, There are patients that do have other secondary insurances and things like that that don't require that and you can kind of get around the Medicare homebound guidelines. I will say that probably... 30% of the patients that we're treating as home infusion do have an existing home health need as well, which is why they're required 
to have that homebound status. They're on infusion, but they also have that home health need for a wound or some other issue that, you know, is going to require that homebound status. But the remaining 60% of those patients, they have no need for home health and they're being seen by nursing who's just specializing in that infusion care and coming to see the patient once a week to take care of the IV access, um, the line that's in the patient so that allows them to infuse and to obtain some labs for the physician and for the pharmacist myself to review. Um, and they don't have any other skilled need at that time. So those patients are not required to be homebound to receive care from us. So I understand that, you know, one of the things that makes your infusion uh, line of service very different than some others, uh, some others are maybe more of a pass-through where they contract with a different company to provide the medications. I- am I correct that you at Duke actually compound the medications and, and build them yourselves? We do. We do. We have a pretty state-of-the-art clean room facility. Um, it There are seven technicians that we have full-time that go in and are certified and trained in IV compounding, and they are the, pa- the, the people that make the medications for the patients, and we have, from start to finish, complete and total oversight of how those medications are compounded, and there are very, very rigorous standards that we have to meet to do sterile compounding, including making sure that our IV room is cleaned a certain way every single day. We have to do testing weekly, monthly, bi-annually <laughs> to make sure that all of our equipment is up to par and that we're not growing any type of bacteria or fungus in the room. Um, we have very, very strict standards on what we need to do to maintain this type of facility. And, and those are enforceable standards by our State Board of Pharmacy. We are inspected by our State Board of Pharmacy at least annually, and we also are certified by the Joint Commission, um, which is the certifying governing board for most of the hospitals in the area, and we have to also meet their standards as well to do that. So we enjoy being able to have that oversight um, because we can make products specific for each patient. Well, and there's something to so, be said about being in charge of the actual quality yourself. Yeah, I mean, it gives you, it gives yeah, you more so We know what we're getting. Exactly, yeah. So, so what, what makes you so excited and impassioned about what you do on a day-in and day-out basis? I can just tell by the energy in your voice that you absolutely love what you do. I do. And, and I did this by chance. I fell into this career as a pharmacy student um, a long, long time ago. <laughs> and um, ever since I kind of was introduced to the home infusion world, which most students in pharmacy school don't ever even know exists. Um, once I got introduced to that world, I knew that that was what I wanted to do and that I really wasn't ever going to, to want to do anything else. Um, I I love being able to see a continuity of care for a patient. So in the hospital, a lot of times, you know, people will come in for a brief period and then kind of be on their way. And, and you know, you, you know, you don't ever really get to form a relationship or a bond with those patients. And although I don't physically get to see patients in person, I do have these patients on service with me for an extended period of time. In most cases, I talk to them a couple times a week and I become friends with them and, you know, we laugh and, and we, we make jokes about how at the beginning of therapy they were so terrified and how at the end of therapy they could come be my nurse. So um, <laughs> they, they really 
really enjoy being able to be at home where they're comfortable and being able to kind of see through that process and and take care of them when they're kind of at their worst, but seeing them through to when they kind of get back to the point where they feel like they're better. It's a, it's a really rewarding feeling and patients are so appreciative. And it's just, it's, in my opinion, the best little niche of pharmacy that exists. It's such a fascinating subject, and I'm so glad that we got the chance to talk to you today. If folks want to find more about this online, just Google Duke Home Care and Hospice, Duke Home Care and Hospice, and uh, it'll be the first result that comes up for you. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope you guys continue to have a good day. Thank you. She is Jessica Crable Hartman, clinical pharmacist with PharmD. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. If you ever want to find more about Transitions Life Care, please go online to transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, we're going to shift focus here and we're going to be talking about brain health. This is a subject that I am excited to talk about and I'm very excited to welcome our two guests as well. On the line, we have Rachel DeWees. She is the operational coordinator for the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health at Duke. And uh, we also have Marianne Chanty Ketterl. She's the aging epidemiologist at Duke as well. Thank you both, Rachel and Marianne, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And also, I wanted to say thank you as well for your support and participation in the upcoming Virtual Caregivers Summit. Super excited to have you there as well for that. So, Marianne, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your work with um, brain health. And really, you know, this is something, especially right now, when we're all a little bit more isolated because of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I, I don't want some of these really important messages that we tried to get out to our aging adult community about the importance of brain health and the types of things that we can do to maintain our brains, especially when perhaps we're being a little bit more sedentary right now because we might be nervous about being exposed to COVID-19. So if you could talk to us a little bit about what we can do to maintain our brains. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we pretty much can maintain our health at any in any circumstances. Of course, it's a little bit harder now, but we need to become creative. Um, you know, with the, like the Alzheimer's Association actually has a class on brain health that people can take virtually. If they want to learn more about this, they can go on their website and look it up. But I like to always focus on on four areas. So four areas that we really need to target to maintain our brain health. And those are physical health and exercise, like you said. And, and I'll, I can talk a little bit more about this in a second. Um, social involvement. Again, as you mentioned, with this times in isolation, it just it's super important to keep socially engaged. 
Um, then we also, of course, need to take care of our diet and our nutrition, and we need to stay cognitively active. So those are the main four areas to maintain our brain health. And, you know, with physical exercise, now we need to become a little more creative, but we can't go to the gyms and many things. But there are many studies that show that things as simple as yoga that we could do at home, and those have been proven to really maintain brain structures and really improve our cognitive health. And so that's something simple that we can do at home. Yeah, um, and I was going to say, you know, I've really noticed uh, that there have been a lot of gyms, you know, places that are closed right now because we can't be open and we're only in phase two, or even um, just other types of organizations have really, even the senior centers and things like that, really understand the importance of exercise. And they're, they're really providing a lot of really great online tools and resources for older adults to utilize to really help them maintain themselves even when they're sitting at home. Exactly. And there are many actually sitting exercises that you can do. I think what really is important, I think, for people to really understand is if you think about every time your heart pumps, 25% of the blood that is getting pumped is going to your brain. So the better that heart's pumping, the better blood flow you get to your brain and the better your cognitive function is going to be. Now, I always say, especially with senior citizens, the number one thing you want to make sure is to really, if you're going to try something new, make sure you check with your primary care provider first before you start anything. That's number one. And then number two is, I I always say exercise is kind of like a relationship. You really kind of have to marry it. And (laughs) you got to start by really, the number one thing is you got to enjoy it. Because if you're not going to enjoy it, you're not going to stick with it. You're not going to do it. So, you know, just try it little by little and and check it out. It's just you'll find something that you fall in love with. And it could be from a sitting exercise to, you know, even walking every morning or afternoons. If you don't like the morning, try it at the afternoon. It's, it, it's just get going, get moving, well, right? Well, Marianne, you have me now picturing some sort of a dating app where we swipe past different types of exercise that don't tickle our fancy. No, 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 I'm not a runner. No, maybe, yeah, I could try this one. Well, let's just give that yeah, one a go. I, that's, a, that's not a bad idea, actually. That is a good idea. <laughs> Too funny. Um, what else? Yeah, and then we, you know, we always want to make sure that even if we're during COVID times, we stay socially connected. And there are so many studies out in the literature that show that social isolation is just so detrimental to our brain health. And it leads to disability in the long run. So especially if you're, um, you know, towards your new second 50s, right? After that, you want to really stay socially active. And you don't have to be going out there. You can do virtual active activities, you know, do Zoom calls, FaceTime with your family and friends. And, and, and there are many ways there, are, like my book club went on a Zoom book club now. So there are many book clubs that you can still enjoy and, and gather with them and, and really just the, the, the key here is just keep doing something that really stimulates your brain and, and, and be socially active. Because you know, um, so my family, I'm originally from Costa Rica, and we actually just had a huge Zoom meeting two days ago. And it was so uplifting, really, to just see everybody and see how everybody's doing all in, you know, different places around the world. And it really does help your, you know, your your, your emotions. It, it uplifts you, so... 
Yeah, and really just, you know, and as we are living with the pandemic, and I, you know, and unfortunately, I don't think any of us in healthcare think that this is going away anytime too quickly. So this is the new normal for a while, really just trying to figure out creative ways to maintain connection with people. You know, even an example, I, you know, my, my husband and I, we had not seen our daughter who's, you know, young married, who's been living in Greenville, South Carolina for almost six months since the pandemic came and everyone was just trying to keep everybody safe. And, and then, you know, we just all sort of made the decision, okay, we are all going to self-quarantine for a couple of weeks and then we're gonna come together in sort of a remote location where we're just going to all cook for ourselves, but just spend that quality of time together. And I will tell you, that really helped all of our spirits lift up and just made things feel like we weren't living in the pandemic, even just for a little while. Exactly. And and it's not only good for us, but for especially the little ones also, mm-hmm. just to feel that there's still people out there. It's, I think, um, you know, I think children and, and seniors have been the hardest hit with all of this, but it's definitely, we just need to keep connected. It's super important. Um, and there's also many schools that need uh, seniors to volunteer to read to little kids, uh, which will help both ways. It's mm-hmm. going to help the children and it's going to help them for sure. So and, what, so what uh, about nutrition? I know that's a huge issue. And, and now that everybody's sort of eating at home more than maybe they had been in the past, I think a lot of people are sort of going for some of those ready-made sodium-filled <laughs> meals in that <laughs> freezer aisle. And I will say I know this for a fact, because when I walk down that freezer aisle, oftentimes some of those meals that I might like to pick up are gone. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and they're, they're just so much easier, right? Especially when, oh, when so much stress is going on, thinking about cooking and it's just you know but yes the next you know the next target area or, or area focus that we're going to talk about is diet and nutrition and it's so key because what we you know we are what we eat they say right and oh my gosh i'm telling you i just had a, a terrible sweet cupcake the other day and i just felt <laughs> terrible afterwards so it's like full of sweets so you want to stick to a diet um there are many diets out there there's really only two that have been scientifically shown across the years to be really good, and those are, you know, the typical Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. So you want to, you want to have whatever it is that you're eating with lots of greens, nuts, whole grains. Um, you want to have lean proteins, but you also want to make sure that it's very low in sugar, and especially salt. Um, we just finished the Alzheimer's Association International Conference a couple of weeks ago, and that was huge. We want to make sure you, you lower your salt intake. It's good for blood pressure. It's good for the brain. I mean, it's just overall good. Um, and, of course, you stay away from fast foods. I mean, it's okay once in a blue moon, but <laughs> you really want to stay away from junk food. It's not good for you. That's a true story, though. Sure, t- it, it, it takes tastes good going down, but, boy, 30 minutes later, you feel like you are a zombie. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And last but not least, I want to say, you know, something we kind of all just sort of throw in the back burner is cognitive activity. You want to really, really maintain your cognitive activity. And how we do this is you have to push your buttons. That's what I tell everybody. If you are in your comfort zone, you are not trying hard enough. Um, you really want to acquire new skills. If you, people are like, well, I always do my crossword puzzle. Well, you know what? Um, try something different, something that it's, your brain's not going to go in like auto mode. Mm -hmm. Um, 
try a new language. You know, there are many apps now. We talked about, you know, the social activity um, app that we talked before. Um, there are apps to learn a new language, and it's you're never too old to learn. That is something that's always out there, and I say, no, that is absolutely not true. Um, and so you definitely need to keep um, good mental health. There's a lot of people that are becoming depressed with the COVID, um, and you also want to address that. If you're feeling down, really make sure you go to your PCP and, and really address that. It's it's okay. You know, we all go through it. It's okay to ask for help and get get the help when you need it and not wait longer. The longer you carry on with a depression or, or with mental um, distress, it's just going to, you know, it's not good for your health. That's great advice. That is the voice of Dr. Marianne Chanty Ketterl. She is the aging epidemiologist at Duke. And we also have Rachel DeWeese on the line. We will be talking to her about the North Carolina Brain Health Registry, a registry for uh, brain health at Duke right after this. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. Don't forget, you can also register for the Caregiver Summit. It's free to register. It is a virtual summit this year. Go online to caregiversummit.org, caregiversummit.org. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. We also have on the line Rachel DeWeese and Dr. Marianne Chanty Ketterl, and we're talking all about brain health, Nicole, and uh, we're also going to be discussing the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health at Duke. Yeah, you know, and I think the Brain Health Registry is something that um, people don't really know a lot about, and I think it sometimes might seem like it's something maybe that's a little spooky, so I want um, uh, Rachel to really had to talk to us about what this is and what this means and how this really can help people in our country and future generations. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And I will say off the bat, it is not spooky. <laughs> but um, it, it's, uh, well, the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health is the first registry of its kind in this state. And it does a couple of things. It connects North Carolinians who are 18 years old and older to brain health research opportunities at five different institutions. Um, at the top, uh, it was mentioned that this is at Duke. This registry started at Duke, but with some state funding a few years back has expanded to include four other research institutions. So that's an important note and that this registry covers the entire state. Wow. Another thing that the registry does is um, educate participants and the public about ways to reduce risk and maximize their brain health in everyday life, as Dr. Chani Ketterl was discussing earlier. Um, and we also highlight available supports and resources for people who are living with cognitive change and their caregivers. So I kind of like to think of it as a two-way street where people who are interested in finding out about research that they might be able to participate in are kind of giving into the system. And by being involved, they're getting to hear about what's coming out of brain science. 
so that they can maximize their own cognition and help and create um, involvement in the greater good, I guess, is the way to put so, it. So if somebody wanted to participate in some of this research, what give, give us some examples of what that might look like. Sure. So research is a very broad term, and that can involve studies of people, data, samples of tissue from people, the whole gamut. So I think that might be what you're referring to as spooky. Um, but it's it's a very wide swath of, of ways that people can get involved. So um, you might find out about an ob- observational study that would help to better understand Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. There could be studies involving blood samples and imaging. There could be um, clinical trials that involve new compounds or devices or therapies. So it runs the gamut. But what's important to know about joining the registry is that by getting involved and signing up, what you are committing to is just learning about what research studies are available for which you might be eligible. So you're not you're not saying, yes, I want to um, you know, have spinal fluid taken and be involved in anything that comes down the pike. It's, I'd like to learn what these different institutions, and I'll tell you what, what institutions they are, what are they working on right now to try and better understanding, understand our um, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias with the goal of creating better therapies and eventually one day, hopefully, a cure. Well, I love that you're um, so, you're taking the time to explain that because I think, you know, sometimes we do live in such a research-rich area, and I think people just make automatic assumptions of what even signing up for something may or may not mean. So I think mm-hmm. that's great that, you know, you could sort of catch a group of people that are curious, and then may perhaps over time, they may choose to opt into something, you know, a little bit more detailed. Yeah, and the way it works on the ground is that if you sign up, and I will um, tell your listeners that the website is ncbrainhealth.org, where you can go on there yourself and just sign up, um, or you can call us and we can help you. But it's a very simple process with a very few number of questions asked um, beyond how to best get in touch with you, questions about your age, race, or ethnicity, um, whether or not you've been diagnosed with a memory disorder and um, educational level. Um, all of those things are important. And so when you join the registry, um, you're basically entering a big pool of people who have raised their hand and said, yes, I'm interested in helping. That's it. And then researchers at these institutions come up with whatever studies they want to do. And when they narrow down the types of people that they're looking for for their study, then we can communicate with those people by sorting them for the whatever characteristics the researchers are looking for. And what that looks like is in your inbox, you get a flyer or a message that says, here's a study that you might be eligible for. And then you call in if you're interested and disregard if you're not. So it's really low pressure. That's really great. I know that, you know, everything surrounding cognitive impairment, the dementias, Alzheimer's disease, things of that nature. I was recently at a presentation where the researcher said a study has been done that people are more scared of being diagnosed with a form of dementia than they are of getting cancer. And so, you know, I think 
people just have a great sense of pause when it comes to the brain and, you know, well, what if I find out there's something wrong with me? Do I want to know? Don't I want to know? And I think people, mm-hmm. people are terrified. And then there's all of sort of the urban myths and legends about how you contract a dimension. Some of them may have a grain of truth, others don't. And so um, I, I definitely think this is super important for the community to know. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, we are, for the registry, we're looking at for people of all ages, so anyone who's 18 years of age and older, mm-hmm. people who have been diagnosed with memory problems, people who have not been diagnosed with memory problems. The idea is to get as broad a range of people as possible because one of the things that is of interest to researchers is what does Alzheimer's disease that shows up in symptoms later on, what does that look like in younger people? So maybe we can find, you know, indicators earlier in the lifespan um, because a majority of people find out about that they have Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia when the symptoms get bad enough. So do you have any examples of any amazing discoveries and research that have come out of the North Carolina Brain Health Registry? So this registry is relatively young. Um, I'm going to defer to Dr. Chani Catterall uh, on this, if there's anything she would like to speak about Sir, regarding um, gonna, the registry. Yeah. So I, I was going to say, well, there are um, many studies that have happened uh, that have used the a what it used to be when it was just at Duke. Right now, we're just in the what what we're calling the second phase when we are making the registry available for researchers. So right now, um, we are just uh, the the two first studies have been approved to okay, use great. the registry. Mm-hmm. So we're just at that stage. Now, um, I personally have used it uh, in its previous form um, for pilot studies, and and it's been super useful. It's it's great for researchers. Um, I did a study on wristbands, uh, silicon wristbands, to measure um, pesticides and chemicals in the environment in people's homes, and we were comparing with farmers. And um, that should be out in publication soon. Um, but basically, we, you know, it was great because for every study, we also need controls, and mm-hmm. that's, you know, people without any kind of um, cognitive problems or, or not. In this case, it was not. A cognitively related disorder. However, the registry served into finding people who were um, non-farmers so that we could see if they were also exposed to the chemicals. So that's how it can help. But I also wanted to add that the registry, is it also serves as a way to get the latest information mm-hmm. on research. So that's really important too. So you don't, you don't have to be um, willing to jump into a research study yet. So you can just join it to get the latest information from basically directly from the scientist. So I think that's that's very powerful. So I know this is Thank sort of- Thank you for mentioning that. So I know this is sort of an aside, um, but I do know that the Alzheimer's Association's um, global research conference was just a couple of weeks back. Were there any huge takeaways from that from either one of you? Oh, absolutely. One of the most important, I mean, and I always jump on this one because I'm really passionate about one of the main barriers that we've had in research is that, you know, we've really done, I'm going to, I'm going to give this out there. Don't quote me on it, but I would say over 90% of our research has been done on, you know, Caucasians 
and we have no diversity. And that's why Alzheimer's drugs often go out into a phase three, phase four, and they don't work as well as we expected them because, you know, we have a we're a melting pot, right? It's a very diverse um, country, and we need more more people of color to join the research in order to properly test our medications, our behavioral therapies and everything, and then come out and actually work. Because we only, if we only focus in one group, then when we put it out there in the world and, and it just mixes with everybody, it's just, it's not going to translate. And so it is super important to increase diversity. And so this year at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, that was that was the number one thing of, of really putting a cry out there in the public that we need everyone involved in research um, in order to move this forward. So that's amazing. That, that, yeah, that was basically I, I, if there was anything to take out, people really need to understand that everyone needs to get involved. It's not just who's, you know, who's more accessible to it, but mm-hmm. everybody needs to join in order to find a cure. Yeah, yep. definitely the whole idea and of the social disparities of health is something that our whole country needs to tackle and really build that trust with more diverse populations. Because a lot of times there's a lack of trust with the medical community just because of some things that have gone on in the, in the distant past. So I definitely feel like we need to figure out, you know, a campaign on how to reach those groups and, and hopefully gain their trust so that these research studies will be a more impactful for them and their families. Absolutely. Yep. That's absolutely true. And, you know, here with the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health, this is um, an issue as well that we're trying to increase um, diversity among the the people who are participating um, uh, gender-wise as well as racial and ethnic groups. Um, and I, I do want to mention, I don't think I have yet, the, the other institutions that are involved in the registry and point out that each one of these sites um, has a, an outreach coordinator that goes out into their communities to try and solicit um, participation in general, but with, a, with an eye for trying to reach underserved in research um, groups of people who, by the way, often are um, those groups that have higher incidences of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So even more of a reason that we need to have more participation in, in the studies. Um, joining Duke in this um, five institution consortium is East Carolina University, North Carolina A&T, State University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Wake Forest School of Medicine. Yeah, that's wonderful. Great to see all those universities and institutions joining up for this wonderful effort. If you want to find more information, go online to ncbrainhealth.org, ncbrainhealth.org. I want to thank Rachel DeWeese. She's the operational coordinator for the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health and also Dr. Marianne Chanty Ketterl, aging epidemiologist at Duke. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care 
on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, uh, you know, you've been dealing with a lot with getting your kids through school <laughs> while also at home. As, I think I uh, need a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> so many of our uh, our listening audience is also dealing with that, whether it's with their kids or, or grandkids. But uh, on top of that, you're also putting on the first ever virtual caregiver summit and uh, registration is currently open and it's uh, people have been excited about the opportunity to register for free to attend the virtual caregiver summit. So what is the phrase that kids say on mind blown? Like I yes. keep getting mind blown with this caregiver summit. <laughs> I mean, we have over 70 exhibitors and sponsors. We have four to five concurrent sessions that will be going on through the entire summit. And we have almost have 400 registrants already. So super excited for those of you who who are hearing about this for the first time. We have been running uh, caregiver summits for families who have been in the process of caring for a loved one or anticipating having to care for a loved one, either in their home or wherever they call home, whether it's a long-term care community. And we put on these educational events every single year. We usually do three to four of them um, and, and rent out giant convention centers and have about 1,500 total attendees over the year. Well, obviously, COVID-19 brought on a year like no other. And so we had to transition our entire event to a virtual platform. And so we have um, decided that we are going to hold our event on October 22nd this year. And folks can hop online and register at caregiversummit.org. We will have sessions running from eight in the morning until four in the afternoon. And folks will be able to learn all kinds of different pieces of information to really help them along their caregiving journey, really helping them to to prepare to care, helping them to care for themselves as the family caregiver. And then even we get into some of the weeds with some of the chronic conditions that typically face older adults and really how to, you know, manage the emotions of older adults and how to assist them with making decisions like taking the car keys away and how to, um, you know, maintain movement. I mean, we just had some great speakers on talking about, you know, brain health and nutrition, and we typically have sessions about that that, sessions about scams. We have um, Madam Secretary Elaine Marshall coming on uh, this year, and she's going to be talking to us about the various different scams that are affecting older adults during COVID-19, as well as some changes to some laws related to advanced directives and so super excited. Well, there's reason to be excited. And I know you and your team have been working so hard. You usually have a, a full year to put on these uh, multiple caregiver summits. And now you had to shift gears uh, mid-year. And I, I know it's it's been a, a tremendous amount of work for you and your team, but you guys are doing a wonderful job. And, you know, attending these caregiver summits, are, it's it's something to behold, Um just, just to see the people there and how much they're enjoying being able to get this information and seeing that there's other people in similar situations to them, it goes a long way. But to be able to build this virtual environment and sort of keep that one-on-one uh, -on -one ability to talk to these vendors, uh, that's that's huge. Yeah, that's something that we really felt was quite important this year. Uh, you know, we could have done, you know, a weekly webinar, one-hour webinar with topic after topic after topic and called it a day and people would have been happy with that. But what we have realized over the years is that the family caregivers really appreciate the opportunity to talk 
talk to the individual resources that are there. So, you know, they may be coming along and they, they want to learn a little bit more about what is home care, what is home health, you know, learn about some of these long-term care communities or adult daycare centers. And families will, will literally stand there at times during a session time just to have those conversations about the specific needs of their loved ones. And they really appreciate that access. And so access this year has just been so different. So even though we've been talking a lot about older adults being more isolated, family caregivers are much more isolated in making their decisions about the care for their loved ones because they haven't had the ability to have that personal access this year just because of the way things shifted and different office hours for individuals and things of that nature. So we've actually been able to find a conference event platform that will allow us to give that family caregiver a real personalized approach to learning about the resources. And they can even schedule one-on-one Zoom meetings during the conference to have a face-to-face with those exhibitors, which the exhibitors appreciate. But I know the families are really going to be thrilled with the ability to do that. And I neglected to say that um, the platform that we've chosen is also allowing us to keep the content live for an entire year. So after the event airs, uh, folks will be able to continue to go in and watch more sessions and continue to connect with the exhibitors for an entire calendar year after our actual conference. So we know that that's going to be a great, great opportunity for the families and we will have this app will actually be available in the Apple Apple App Store and the Google Play Store, and there will also be a link available for folks to actually utilize this on their desktops as well. So, in some ways, you know, our touchable devices will become a pocket full of resources for families that you know want to utilize them throughout the year, or as the needs of their loved ones change throughout the year. We know that you know, especially when you have an older adult loved one with multiple chronic conditions, things can change on a dime. So we hope that this will really be beneficial to people throughout 2020 and part of 2021. It's an amazing resource filled with uh, all these vendors right here in our own backyard. Go to caregiversummit.org to register for free. That's the other thing. It's it's free to attend, which is amazing. Caregiversummit.org. You can also head over to WPTF. If you click on podcasts and head over to the Aging Matters section, you can one view uh, or listen to episodes of the show, and you can also find a link to the Caregivers Summit Uh, there as well caregiversummit.org we are out of time for today on behalf of nicole cleggett i'm jason kong thanking you for listening to aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care it's your life your care on fm 98.5 am 680 wptf news talk traffic have a great weekend You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.